Thanks to Matthew for leading. Thanks to our excellent musicians for helping us as well in our praise and also for whoever's picked the songs because we've been singing some really, really good stuff together over the weekend. So if you've joined us for this evening, quick recap of where we've been. Last night we were thinking about the fact that appearances are not always an accurate judge of reality. We were asking that question, who is the real king? And to many people it looked as if it was Ahasuerus, but he was not the one with sovereignty in chapter 1. We were seeing another invisible king on a higher throne. And then first thing this morning, we were thinking about the fact that sin is never the easy and straightforward way out of something, despite the fact that sin always whispers that to us. Sin always complicates. We get trapped in this web, left to ourselves. How would there ever be a way out of it? But then we saw great glimpses of God's redeeming grace, how he can get to work even in compromised and messed up lives. And then we saw God's grace in Esther's life and this great heroic courage that it brought about. She, like Mordecai, came to trust the Lord. She feared the king on the higher throne and so did something really brave and courageous. She walked the path of real wisdom because she feared the Lord. And now this evening, we're going to think about how in this world, because God is sovereign, his providence means that there is no such thing as luck, chance, or coincidence. Let's pick up our reading at verse 14 of chapter 6. And again, we hear God's word. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. We thank God for his word. So the clock ticks. And King Ahasuerus lies awake. In another part of the palace, Esther knows that the clock is ticking for the people of God. It's now only a few months until Haman unleashes his genocide against the Jewish people across the 127 provinces of the empire. Haman's goal is nothing short of the annihilation of the Jews. And Esther is oblivious to the fact that the clock is ticking even more quickly for Mordecai. It seems that Mordecai now has only hours left to live. The gallows, they are being erected so that Haman can get personal revenge on Mordecai. So imagine the camera panning out from the king. He can't sleep. There's Esther in another part of the palace. And then in the distance, even in the middle of the night, the workmen are there working round the clock to build this absurdly tall structure. And it's fitting that all of this takes place at night because it is a dark moment for the people of God. But on this dark, dark night, the Lord is at work behind the scenes bringing this story to its climax. We've seen the story start to turn. Well, chapter 6 is the hinge around which the whole thing swings. And I think it's so interesting that Esther and Mordecai are not even mentioned in this chapter. Esther's there. She's displayed great courage. She's shown massive wisdom and ingenuity. But for now, Esther disappears off the stage because another greater actor is stepping right to the fore. (laughs) So the king can't sleep. He lies awake. He probably, presumably, has the best bed in the empire. And yet he is suffering from insomnia. Sleep had literally fled away from him. And of all the many ways that this king could have chosen to spend the time, for some reason, he asks his servant to come and read to him from the royal chronicles. He wants to hear government records. We don't know the reason why. Maybe he thought, that'll bore me back to sleep. Maybe he thought, well, I'm wide awake. I might as well get my red box out and do some government business until I'm tired again. And then, coincidentally, what is read to the king? Well, he hears about how Mordecai had uncovered a plot to kill him. And the king says, well, read on. Tell me, what kind of honor did we bestow upon Mordecai? What did we give him? And the servants look carefully at the chronicles and they say, well, king, we did nothing for Mordecai. We did not reward him in any way. And the king is mortified. Five years have passed and nothing has been done to honor Mordecai for foiling this assassination attempt on the king's life. Persian kings, they were known for rewarding royalty. It promoted security. Who would save the king the next time if the king did nothing for the one who uncovered this particular plot? It was an embarrassment, and the king decided that it needed to be rectified immediately. He calls... Send in a royal advisor. It's the middle of the night. The servants go out. Who will be there? 
who would be in the court at this time? Well, lo and behold, at that very moment, Haman arrives. What better man than Haman? Second advisor to the king, he is immediately ushered in to the king's presence. It is a moment of delightful, tragic comedy. These two characters are completely clueless about each other's plans. Haman is there, full of bloodlust. He has come into work before dawn in order to make sure that all is in place to see Mordecai being executed that day. And the king calls Haman in because he plans to honor Mordecai for his faithful service. Neither knows what's happening, but the Lord God knows exactly what is going on here. He is the actor in this chapter. His providence is drawing everything together to move towards a great conclusion. The hand of God has been there right from the beginning of this chapter. It began with that seemingly inconsequential restless night. What kept the king awake? We're not told explicitly, but we do know that God stands sovereign over this. Sleep fled from the king because the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps chased it away. And what a truth. Providence, it is so great that it includes even the sleeping habits of a king. And then what just happens to be read? Well, this particular chronicle turns the clock back over four or five years And it just so happens that they read from the very passage that mentions Mordecai. That's what God's sovereignty is like. It is that comprehensive. God ensured that the very section that was read to the king was the one all about Mordecai. This has happened the whole way through the book. Even what was read about Mordecai, that was an incident in which Mordecai just happened to overhear that plot against the king's life. The politicians, they forgot all about Mordecai. For them, it was just an unusual clerical error. Somehow, they had managed to overlook him. But the Lord God had not overlooked it. The Lord had saved Mordecai's reward for this very moment. God had saved it for such a time as this. That's another staggering thought, isn't it? God's sovereignty is so great that it extends even over human forgetfulness. The things that we forget, God is in control of it all. And so providence means that this is a simply brilliant moment. At the very right moment, Haman just happens to walk into the court. He comes in just as the king was wondering to himself, how will I honor Mordecai? Things perfectly choreographed. The Lord, he is in control of even the moments When people enter rooms, that is how great his sovereignty is. God controls the people that we randomly bump into. That is his sovereignty. Even the way that the king happened to phrase his question, it is just perfectly tailored for this moment. Because when the king asks for advice, he doesn't use Mordecai's name. The king leaves his statement open and ambiguous. And again, the Bible says that even before a word is on our tongues, the Lord knows it altogether. So, so important 
that we have that kind of view of what God's sovereignty is like. There are things that we call coincidences, but they are not coincidences in the final analysis. Things that we use the name chance and luck to describe, but behind all those things is God's invisible hand in everything. God is working out his plans and his purposes for his people. It's so mind-boggling to think about that. God is the silent actor in all the details of our lives. So often we're in situations and we simply do not have a clue what's going on. But the Lord knows all the details. At this moment in the story, Esther and Mordecai, they did not know what was happening. But the Lord saw it all and had planned it all for his purposes. Everything is woven together into God's plans. God does not just work some things into his plan. God's sovereignty is so incomprehensibly great that everything fits into it. He weaves it all together. So-called coincidences, like the kind of night's sleep that we get. Even things like being on the receiving end of an injustice in the workplace does not happen by chance. In all those things that happen in our lives, even the small and the mundane, God is at work. He puts the right people in the right place at the right time. Esther ought to teach us so, so clearly that when you look around and when it seems as if everything is going wrong, and there were plenty of minutes in the story when it seemed as if everything was going very, very wrong, we ought never to assume that God's not in charge. For Esther and Mordecai, it looked as if everything was about to fall apart. It felt like everything was about to fall apart. But in reality, the Lord was simply pulling everything together. That's God's sovereignty. Does it make our actions and our choices redundant? Are we just all puppets in this? Not at all. Esther's carefully thought out, beautifully executed plan, it was absolutely necessary in all of this. But ultimately, it is not what turned the fortunes of God's people. God is at work. Right here in this pivotal chapter, even though whilst in chapters 5 and 7, Esther's really active, planning, acting, being very, very wise, right at the center here in chapter 6, our skillful author wants to take the focus away from human actions. The spotlight's taken off Esther so that in this chapter we can see the footsteps of the hidden king. God's sovereignty and his providence, completely comprehensive, covering the great and the minuscule. And that truth ought to comfort you and cheer your soul. It ought to inspire devotion and it ought to be a rock that leads to great faithfulness. Let's see something else in the section that we're looking at. Here I want us to think about how in God's time, pride leads to destruction. Let's pick up the story again. Haman, as we now know, he is anxious to get to the king. And so whilst others are still trying to sleep, Haman is up. And he's getting into work. 
when he arrived into the palace, he must have been overjoyed to hear that the king was awake and wanted to meet with him. Remember what Haman is like. He is puffed up, proud as a peacock. For Haman, he thinks, my star now, it's once again in the ascendancy. But in God's time, pride always leads to destruction. And the Lord here is at work to put Haman firmly in his place. In verse 6, Ahasuerus invites Haman to suggest a special reward that would be appropriate for the royal favorite. And as I said, the king here, wonderfully, he leaves out the name of the persons to be honored. He simply says, Haman, what reward would you give to the man whom the king delights to honor? It is rich in irony. Because when Haman had gone into the king seeking the destruction of all the Jewish people, do you remember? He didn't actually use the name of the Jews. He said, King, I won't bore you with the details. There's this people. Let's wipe them out. Well, here there is poetic justice because the king doesn't use Mordecai's name. He says, What will you give to the man whom the king delights to honor? And so it's with great wit that the king just happens to omit the name. And as you know, Haman assumes that the king must surely be thinking about him. We're told exactly what he was thinking in his heart in verse 6. From what we know of Haman, this is no surprise. He thinks that the king could only have him in mind. Well, what would you say when this was asked to you? Well, he couldn't ask for promotion. He was second only to the king. He could have asked for wealth and property. But that's not really what drives Haman. Haman is a man who is all about show and reputation, prestige and position. And so in verses 7 to 9... We hear what Haman has to devise for himself. In his mind, he conjures up the image of a grand parade in which he is going to be treated like royalty. It's going to be tantamount to Haman being like another king in the land. He says, King, this man whom the king would want to honor, he ought to be dressed in royal robes. He ought to be seated upon the king's horse, he ought to wear a royal crown. Haman imagines himself being led through the city to the adulation of all the crowd as the man whom the king desires to honor. Haman wants recognition, praise, and honor. Haman wants elevation. And he is setting the stage for the greatest humiliation. Because in God's economy, pride always leads to destruction. So he's given the king his answer. And the king loves it. Ahasuerus says, this is just perfect. I couldn't have thought of anything better myself. He likes it so much that he says, Haman, you must go and implement this immediately. And it is exquisite because in verse 10, the key phrase is left until the very last moment. The king says, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so. And then he drops the bombshell. Haman, you do know who I'm talking about here? It's Mordecai, the Jew, the one who sits at the king's gate. Try to imagine what Haman's expression must have looked like at this moment. What kind of look would have been written all over his face? It must have come as just a devastating hammer blow to Haman's fragile ego. 
And then comes the final crushing statement. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. What's particularly galling is that Haman has dreamt this whole ceremony up himself. He has to go out and he has to honor Mordecai. And what about Mordecai? I wonder what Mordecai was thinking that morning as he came in to work. Had he heard who this great pole was being constructed for? Had rumors started to spread through Susa? Haman's out to put Mordecai to death now. Was Mordecai coming into work thinking, this is it, I am done for? But then Mordecai, as he approaches the palace, sees that Haman is simultaneously seething with anger and at the same time absolutely crushed and broken. Haman's plans, they have been thwarted just at the moment when the gallows have been completed. And what a transformation takes place. The last time that we heard about Mordecai's clothes, he was wearing sackcloth and ashes. And now Haman comes and he puts the king's own royal robes on Mordecai. He takes him to the king's horse and he helps him mount it. And then he leads them through the streets, having to proclaim to everyone that this is the man whom the king delights to honor. Well, the jaunt round Susa is complete. At the end of the ceremony, they parted their ways. And you see so much about these people from the way that they responded to it. Mordecai, after all of this, well, he simply goes back to his office at the king's gate. For Mordecai, it's actually no big deal. Mordecai says, I've got work to do. That's how he responds to prayers. You can always tell lots about someone by the way that they respond to prayers. And then Haman afterwards, he is so shaken that all he can do is beat a retreat. He goes home feeling numb. He doesn't want to see anyone. Once again, he gathers his wife and his friends around him. He recounts what's happened this time. It's not a story of his success and the dinner parties that he's been invited to and all his riches and his family. This time, it is a story of shame. And as his family sit with him, they realize what is going on. In verse 13, it's as if the penny is starting to drop. They say, isn't Mordecai a Jew? All this It's got to be something to do with that. Hindsight, it is a wonderful thing. Even Zeresh realizes that this is surely no coincidence. Maybe one of them even remembered the history of Israel. Maybe they remembered what happened to Haman's ancestors, the Amalekites. Zeresh says, Haman, your fall is now inevitable. In fact, It has already begun, and there is nothing that you can do about it. The hand of God was at work in the events of the day. But there's no time to reflect, because at that very moment, the escort group arrives to whisk Haman off to the royal dinner date. And it's as if he is dragged, kicking and screaming, into the banquet No one would think that he was going in to a lavish feast. Haman approaches as if he is going to court in order to be sentenced. And all of a sudden, in chapter 7, we are inside the royal palace. Ahasuerus has got only one thing on his mind. What has been going on with Queen Esther? Why does she keep inviting me to these special parties? What's on her mind? What's she trying to bring about? And so for a third time, he presses Esther to find out why she risked her neck in the first place 
to come before to his throne without an invitation. The king puts it this way. What is your wish, Queen Esther? With tremendous extravagance, he promises her that she can have whatever she wishes for, even up to half of his kingdom. Now, Esther's heard this question twice before, and on both occasions, she has sidestepped it. She's done that in order to gain ground, but now she knows that her chance has come. She has been waiting for precisely the right opportunity to trap Haman and to save her people. And at this point, Haman was almost snared. Great courage was required. The same faithful courage that took her into the throne room. She has got to persuade Ahasuerus this dangerously unstable tyrant to do the seemingly impossible. And for Esther, there is no bottling it here. She risks it all. In verse 3, there's great humility once again. She shows her submission and her deference to the king. She reminds him that he chose her as his queen and that in some way his reputation is bound up with hers. And then she gets down to the specifics. In verse 2, the king has offered her both a wish and a request. Her wish is that she would be spared, and her request is that all her people would be spared. And then she offers the explanation. Verse 4. King, don't you realize... We have been sold, I and my people. And she goes on and she quotes the royal edict itself. She says, we are to be destroyed, to be killed and annihilated. Do you see what she's doing with all of this? She says, we, we have been sold, me and I and my people to be destroyed and annihilated. This is not Esther the chameleon, content to blend in. This is Esther standing shoulder to shoulder with her people, no longer concealing her identity, but freely declaring that she is a Jew. She is bold. She says, I am under this sentence of death. She adds her name to the list of those who will be rounded up by the death squads. And so she has to impress upon the king just how serious this is. And boy, is she wise. She knows her husband. She knows how you get his attention. She knows how to make him sit up and take notice. She appeals to his self-interest. Picking up the language of Jesus, we could say, that Esther is as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. She says, if it were only enslavement, verse 4, I wouldn't even have brought this up. But she says, King, because of this, your very reputation is at stake. It's on the line. Because how would anyone be able to compensate you for the loss to your reputation if this edict was allowed to stand. And Haman is sitting right there, just across the table, surely wishing that the crown would just open up and swallow him down. Once again, we would just love to know what did his face look like at that moment? Well, King Ahasuerus is angry. He is enraged. We've seen him like this before. The king asks, well, who is he? Where is he? Verse 5, who is the one who has dared to do this? The king, oblivious to what's going on, he hasn't joined up any of the dots. 
For now, though, the time for shrewd and cunning words has passed. The moment has come for Esther to strike and to spring the trap. And verbally, Esther points a finger right across the table as she answers the king. Verse 6, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. The trap slams shut and Haman is caught. We read that Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. He knows already that the game is up for him. He's been exposed as the mastermind behind a plot that is going to include the murder of the queen. And he is doomed. Ahasuerus doesn't even know what to think. He is seething with rage. And so he gets up from the table and he goes outside into the cool of the evening because the king here has a massive problem in front of him. Haman is his right-hand man, his prime minister, and he has just been exposed as a traitor. And what's that to? Well, that calls the king's own judgment into serious question. But what could Ahasuerus do against Haman? Because the king had signed this into law. How could he act against Haman for doing what he himself had agreed to? The king struggles to collect his thoughts. And what about all those extravagant and very public promises he had made to Esther? He said he would do anything she asked for, but Esther has just asked him to do the thing that is impossible. Because this edict is part of the law of the Medes and Persians, and it cannot be altered. The decree, it is irreversible, and she is asking for the impossible. So there he is, in the cool of the evening air at Susa, stuck on the horns of a dilemma. What is he going to do? Back inside to the meal table. Haman has stayed to beg Esther for his life. Presumably he could have told from the look in the king's eyes that he was a dead man. And Haman loses it. No male was allowed to be left alone with the king's wife or any of his concubines. Even when the king was present, no man was to be allowed within seven steps of the queen. If the king left, then by law, Haman had to leave as well. But he doesn't leave. He stays. And not only that, he throws himself on the couch where Esther herself is reclining. And can you see the irony here? Do you remember how this whole affair started? It started because Haman demanded that Mordecai bow, but Mordecai refused to bow. And Haman had been incensed that a Jew would not bow down before him. But now here is Haman bowing down before Esther on his knees in front of one of those Jews that he wanted to destroy. As his wife had said, Haman's fall had already begun. And once again, in God's perfectly timed providence, at that very second, when Haman is throwing himself on the queen's couch, the king re-enters the room. Once again, timing is everything. Haman has, on inadvertently, provided the king with the perfect solution to his dilemma. This is going to be his reason to act against Haman. The king knows exactly how to spin that snapshot of a moment. Verse 8. Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Well, he's not seriously suggesting that Haman was trying to lay hands on the queen. But this will be his excuse. 
And again, it is full of irony. The poetic justice is written large. Haman lied about God's people so that he could kill them for a crime that they did not commit. And now the king is going to lie about Haman and use it as his excuse to put him to death. In the instance that Ahasuerus spoke, the royal bodyguards acted instinctively. They knew what to do. Without even a word of command, they covered Haman's head with a hood in preparation for his execution. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, points out that a set of gallows has already been built. Haman had built them for Mordecai, the one whose word saved this king. Mordecai, the one whom the king delights to honor. Harbona doesn't even get to finish his sentence. The king instructs his officers, go and hang Haman on it. He's impaled on the gallows that only hours beforehand he had built. How deeply ironic. The one who was so obsessed with being lifted up is now lifted high so that everyone can see him. So God's providence, it is everywhere. And in God's way of dealing with people, the pride will always be brought low. I want to spend the rest of our time just thinking about how All of this speaks to us about the gospel. Because what we've read about here, it's all about reversals. It's all about the tables being turned, things being flipped in their heads. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is all about great reversals. Let's note a few things about the gospel. The first one's this. Judgment is absolutely certain. We go through life and the wicked seem to prosper all the time. And Mordecai, he had worked hard and he had been loyal and yet he had been passed by. Haman had been promoted and he has no problems, it seems, getting his evil schemes past the king. We all need to be very sure that judgment is certain. The Hamans of this world will be hung on their gallows. They may get away with evil for a season, but their time will come. And as as horrific as Haman's grisly death was, when Haman opened his eyes, he would see another king with deeper wrath and more perfect justice, one whose anger against sin will not be quenched. It's a sobering truth. Judgment will come. And we're all like Haman. We might not be as obviously Haman, but in our hearts we are selfish. We are proud. We are in this life for ourselves. Here, the king was filled with wrath against Haman. Ahasuerus, far from a good king. His wrath, quick, unpredictable. Ahasuerus' justice, it is not perfect. But the justice of the Lord Jesus Christ is supremely perfect justice. His wrath is not that of a fuse blowing. His wrath is slow. And he exacts perfect justice. Galatians 6 verse 7 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So easy to deceive ourselves about the reality of God's judgment. So easy to think judgment will not really come to this world. Everything just keeps going on. It always seems to be the same old, same old. 
And do not be deceived about it. Don't be deceived in the way that Haman was. For whatever someone sows, that they will also reap. There's always the time lag between sowing and reaping. A period of time can last a very long season. But as the verse says, God is not mocked. The harvest day will come. So judgment is certain. Let's see another thing about the gospel. Let's think about the nature of that judgment. There's a principle that runs the whole way through the Bible about God's justice, and it's this. The punishment always fits the crime. The punishment is tailor-made for the crime. The punishment is never more or less than what justice demands. There's an exactness to it. There is a fittingness to the way that God judges. And we saw that as we observed the rich irony of this passage. Haman's wicked plan had been to kill Mordecai and the gallows. And so justice means that Haman will be condemned to the gallows. Fits the crime. You sow what you reap. You reap the harvest of whatever you plant. Some of that harvest will come in the judgment of the last day. Some of the harvest will come even in this life. God's justice is already at work. He is not mocked. So judgment is certain. Judgment is exact and fitting. And finally, judgment creates a great problem. So God's judgment, it is certain and it is exact. And therefore, what hope can there possibly be for people like us, people who are proud and selfish? God simply cannot say, your sin is not that important. We can just ignore it. The law of the Medes and Persians, it could not be changed. And God's law, an expression of who he is, it cannot be changed. The Lord, he is angry with sin. Sin is spiritual treason, and God has said that he will punish it. And yet, just as King Ahasuerus had made great promises to Esther of all that he would give her, so the Lord God has made extravagant promises of Forgiveness and grace and eternal life. How can the impossible be made possible? God must punish sin. We are sinners. How can he show the grace that he's spoken of in the gospel? How can the holy God be perfectly just and the one who justifies sinners? That's the dilemma. That is the problem of judgment. Well, imagine back in our story, if a saviour had appeared for Haman right at the very last moment, just as the king had said, take that man away to die, someone came forward who can die in his place, someone who could die as an enemy of the king, so that Haman could be spared. The Hebrew word used here for gallows is simply the tree. That saviour would have been hung in the tree and then Haman would have been spared. It's a tiny, distant echo of the gospel. It's a little glimpse into the wonder of how God can be just and the one who justify sinners. It would take the passage of centuries for Jesus to come. He was the man above all others whom the great king in heaven delighted to honor. The Lord Jesus Christ never proud like Haman. There was nothing of Haman in him. He was always humble. He came Not to be served, but to serve. 
He was the exact opposite of Haman in every way. Haman always wanted the trappings of royalty. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he humbled himself and he was stripped of his garments and he was exposed to public shame. The only crown put on Jesus' head was the crown of thorns as he was led through the streets not to the adulations of the crowd, but to their mockery. And why did he do it? Well, he did it to rescue sinners. He was taking the place that we deserved. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. He wore the crown of thorns so that we could wear the crown of righteousness. He was hung in the tree And he endured the cross so that we could receive God's blessing. He endured the shame so that we could become the ones whom the king delights to honor. He took what we deserve so that we get what he deserves. And that means that there is hope. For every proud sinner, there is hope because the Lord God is able to turn lives around. He's able to completely reverse things. He is just the savior that proud sinners like us need. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we want to confess to you the ways in which the heart of Haman lies in our hearts. Father, we want to be lifted up. We want success. We want praise and adulation. We want to be honored. And Father, in that pursuit, just like Haman, We put ourselves at the center of things and we trample over others. And Lord, we know that you will not allow that to go on forever. Your justice, it is perfect. And yet, Father, in the gospel, you come making these extravagant promises to us. That you'll make us sons and daughters in your kingdom. And how will that ever come about? Lord, we praise you. For your son, Jesus Christ, the one that you delighted to honor. We thank you that he was stripped so that we could be clothed and that he wore the crown of thorns so that we could receive the crown of righteousness. Father, please may a glimpse of him put a sword to the pride in our own hearts and make us those who are like him, those who come to serve. We pray this in his name. Amen.